done all the things that were supposed to kill SoFi operationally in 2022 uh, did not kill SoFi operationally at all. Um, higher interest rates and a slowing economic backdrop were supposed to slow lending activity, slow consumer spending, and ultimately uh, slow SoFi's revenue growth trajectory, user growth momentum, their ability to make money, their ability to generate profits from that money. Um, and none of that happened. That's a, you know the, the second quarter results showed us that, the third quarter results showed us that, and the fourth quarter results definitely showed us that. And finally, investors are like, well, geez, if these guys can execute this flawlessly against this tough of a macro backdrop, imagine what they're going to be able to do if indeed the macro backdrop improves meaningfully in 2023, 2024, 2025. What's up, HGI investors, and welcome back to Hypergrowth Investing. I'm Aaron Davis, and as always, pleased to be joined by investment analyst Luke Lango. Luke, how you doing today? Um, good. Doing good. Uh, we have, obviously, it's Tuesday. This doesn't come out until Wednesday. Wednesday's a big day. The Fed speaks, so my mood could completely shift in the next 24 <laughs> hours, but... My mood today, as has been my mood for all of January, has been exceedingly positive, and I hope it can stay that way. I hope the Fed doesn't, you know, well, rain on my mood, so to speak. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm looking forward to getting into that and all our topics in just a few moments. If this is your first time joining us, Hypergrowth Investing is the weekly podcast that picks the brain of investment analyst Luke Lango. Each week, we take an in-depth look at emerging tech and investment innovations, automation, clean energy, artificial intelligence, EVs, and more. Nothing is off limits. If you're joining us for the first time, we go up every Wednesday on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you choose to listen to your favorite podcast. So make sure to hit like and subscribe to get Hypergrowth Investing as soon as it goes up. Again, I'm Aaron Davis, educator, lifelong learner, and your proxy into the mind that is the Luke Lango. Okay, Luke, kicking it off. So fi, so fly, huh? I mean, regular viewers of this show know that you, Luke, are a huge fan of SoFi stock, and that late last year, you were calling the stock the buy of a lifetime as it languished below $5. Now, I hope that our viewers listen because SoFi stock is now already up almost 50% in 2023, and we aren't even in February yet. The stock has been getting a huge lift in the growth resurgence trade that you've been talking about, but it got an especially big pop yesterday after the firm reported excellent fourth quarter numbers. So, Luke, now that the stock is up 50% from the lows and roaring back to life, what do we do now? Is this still the buy of a lifetime? Uh, yes, Aaron. I, I still believe SoFi stock is the buy of a lifetime. Um, the So there's a couple things going on here. Um, one... All the things that were supposed to kill SoFi operationally in 2022 uh, did not kill SoFi operationally at all. Um, higher interest rates and a slowing economic backdrop were supposed to slow lending activity, slow consumer spending, and ultimately uh, slow SoFi's revenue growth trajectory, user growth momentum, their ability to make money, their ability to generate profits from that money. Um, and none of that happened. That's a, you know, the, the second quarter results showed us that, the third quarter results showed us that, and the fourth quarter results definitely showed us that. And finally, investors are like, well, 
geez, if these guys can execute this flawlessly against this tough of a macro backdrop, imagine what they're going to be able to do if indeed the macro backdrop improves meaningfully in 2023, 2024, 2025. You know, last quarter, SoFi added, I broke the number down here, so now I was going through reports, 480,000 new members. That's more than they added in the third quarter. So user growth is re-accelerating. Members are up 50 more than 50% year over year. Uh, total product growth in the fourth quarter was 695,000. That's up from 635,000 prior. So product growth is also accelerating. Again, up more than 50% year over year, 53% year over year. Revenues rose 58% year over year. That's the third consecutive quarter of accelerating revenue growth. So on the top line, we have accelerating member growth, accelerating product growth, and accelerating revenue growth. All while the Fed is aggressively raising interest rates, all while in, or, uh, treasury yields are rising, all while uh, the economy is slowing, all while consumer spending is slowing, all while loan activity is slowing, all while SoFi's core business, original core business, student loan refinancing is essentially not doing anything. So you had all these headwinds, macro headwinds unrelated to SoFi impacting the company, yet the company reported accelerating member growth, accelerating product growth, and accelerating revenue growth. They grew right through that noise. And that speaks to the importance of a great management team. One of the reasons we've been supremely bullish on SoFi, as you know, it's a very competitive landscape, fintech. Everybody wants to be the Amazon of finance. Everybody wants to digitize consumer banking, consumer finance. Everybody's trying to do what SoFi is doing, but only SoFi is doing it at the scale they're doing it because their execution is flawless. And that's a byproduct of the team they built. The management team is second to none in the fintech space. The employees, second to none in the fintech space. It's a very happy culture. It's a very strong culture. It's a culture that's designed to win. Led by winners, powered by winners. And they are winning. They grew right through all the macroeconomic noise that is hurting all their competitors, hurting traditional banks. We saw the bank support earnings three weeks ago, two weeks ago. They weren't great. They weren't awful, fall out of that awful, but they weren't great. They weren't like SoFi. SoFi is now separating itself from the pack through its flawless execution in a space that has a lot of room to grow. So that's why I think the stock can keep going higher. Look at the valuation on it. We're still only at 1.2 times book value. That's about the same valuation as Wells Fargo and Bank of America. There's no reason, zero reason whatsoever, SoFi should be trading at even a similar, remotely similar book multiple to Wells Fargo or Bank of America. Stocks trading at three times forward sales. Sales. That's ridiculous for a company that just grew sales by 58% year over year last quarter, is guiding for 25 to 30% revenue growth this year, and will likely sustain 20% plus revenue growth for the foreseeable future. So the top line momentum here is amazing. But that's also, and perhaps more importantly, flowing through into bottom line improvement. EBITDA margins in the quarter were supposed to be about 9-10%. They came in at 16%. That's up 10 times year over year. EBITDA margins expanded by about 10 
times year over year in the fourth quarter of 2022. Again, that is during a time when it was nothing but macroeconomic turbulence with slow consumer spending, slow lending, and the student loan business essentially on halt. Not only did SoFi grow right through that noise, but somehow, some way they figured out how to leverage their growth and turn it into enormous profit margin expansion, 16% EBITDA margins in the quarter. They're guiding for 14% in 2023, which on a year-over-year basis will represent growth of about 500, 600 basis points. So they're guiding for another year of massive margin expansion in 2023. Net-net, Aaron, everything about the numbers they have been reporting and they continue to report strongly tells me this isn't just the best fintech company in the world. <laughs> this will remain the best fintech company in the world for a long time because great people build great products and businesses that make for great stocks. It all starts with great people. And I believe SoFi has the best of the best, the cream of the crop, the creme de la creme in financial tech. In finance, in tech, the overlap, they have the best team to drive great results in this industry and continue to drive growth for a long, long time into the future. So when I see the stock with that management team, the growth they have trading at you know 1.2 times book, three times forward sales, I see a stock that is far from being done. That it went from under five to about seven, probably now goes to 10, then 15, then 20, then 20, then 25, then 30, then 35, then 40, then 45, 50, so on and so forth. I continue to believe, folks, this is a $100 stock in the long run. I think that's where this company goes, where this stock goes. And I believe on a technical basis, on a short-term technical basis, the stock does look really attractive. This was a stock that was in a massive stage four decline, nasty downtrend for a long time found some support, started to consolidate in a range around September, and now it's breaking to the upside and above the upside of that range. So we're breaking above the peaks of this consolidation range. That's a textbook breakout. I think we have runway now. I think we go much higher. The wild card here, of course, is the Fed. Yes, SoFi grew through the noise in 2022, but the noise was like on a scale of 1 to 10, it was a 6 out of 10. If the Fed ramps up the dial and turns that noise to a 10 out of 10 and rates go to 6 7%, the economy will crash, lending will come to a halt, and SoFi's results will struggle, so will the stock. So the wild card here is the Fed, and that's a major risk, but I'm very confident the Fed's not going to dial it up to a 10 and instead take it from a 6 to a 3 or a 2. And that's going to allow SoFi stock to report even better than expected results in 2023 and provide upside for the stock. So there is a major risk here with the Fed, but the Fed's a major risk to every single stock in the market right now. <laughs> so excluding that risk and assuming that risk will be well contained, which I believe it will be, I think SoFi stock has massive short-term runway from the technical breakout, medium-term runway through very, very strong operational results uh, in 2023, and fantastic long-term runway through just completely disrupting the consumer finance world with the best product and the best team. So I love the stock here. I don't think it's done rallying. I think, you know, we've been pounding on the table about it in the show for a long, long time, and I'm going to continue to pound on the table for it for a long, long time because I don't just buy stocks. I believe I buy companies. I believe in them long term. That's SoFi. And I think SoFi is going to be a big winner in the next three, five, seven, ten years. So if I'm hearing you right, a lot of the SoFi bull thesis, at least in the short term, relies heavily on the Fed. So let's mm -hmm. talk about the Fed. Uh, huge decision this week. It feels like a make or break moment for stocks. 
So what right. is your outlook around the Fed this week? Listen, I, I have no freaking idea what the Fed's going to do. And no, nobody does. Like, let's just be honest. We are now talking about predicting. Well, for, we do know what the Fed's going to do. They're going to raise 25 basis points. Said and done. That's fine. What we don't know what's going to happen and what the market's going to trade on is what Powell sounds like in the press conference, what he says in the prepared remarks, and what he says specifically in the Q&A. And if you think you know what he's going to sound like, I, I think you're smoking your own supply. <laughs> because we are now talking about predicting the behavior and emotions of a man who has flipped like a fish out of water over the past two years from saying, we're not even thinking about thinking about thinking about thinking about thinking about hiking interest rates to we're hiking interest rates to the, you know, to the most extreme level that we can. I mean, they made that transition in about 12 months. And, you know, each press conference, it seems like we get a different Powell. Each Q&A, we get a different Powell. So I don't know what Powell is going to show up tomorrow. If I had to venture a random guess, which to me is worth nothing, but if I had to venture a random guess, I would say, okay, he's going to come in and sound like a super hawk and try and beat down the rally that just happened. That's my guess. I don't know if he'll do it. He may not. I don't know. But what I do think is going to happen is, well, two things are either going to happen. You're either going to get one, he's going to come in and beat down the market and say, we're going to keep hiking rates and stocks are going to fall in the short term. Or he's going to come out and actually sound a little bit more dovish and say, we do see the data. We see inflation coming off. Uh, we're hiking today, but we're, we see an end to our, our rate hike regime uh, pretty soon, in which case stocks are going to soar. So we're either going to crash or soar out of it. I don't know. To me, it's 50-50. I really don't know. Flip a coin, take your guess. But what I am confident in is that whatever we do in the short term, we crash out of the Fed or we rally out of the Fed. The move after that is going to be higher. And the reason I truly believe that is because regardless of what the Fed says on Wednesday, I think I know what the Fed's going to do in the next three months. Mm -hmm. And that is pause the rate, rate hike campaign. Because all of the data, every single day we get new data telling us that inflation is dead. Inflation is over. Now, a lot of people out there don't really understand that concept because of like eggs are still six bucks, uh, you know, a carton. A lot of that dudes, things are still expensive. Yes, they are. That doesn't that fixing inflation doesn't mean prices go back to where they were. That's deflation. Mm -hmm. Fixing inflation means prices just stop going up at the rate they've been going up. That's fixing inflation. And so, yes, eggs are at six bucks a gallon. But guess what? They haven't gone up in a couple weeks. They haven't gone up in a couple months. And they're going to stay there, maybe even go lower in 2023. So when you – inflation is not fixed. My, you know, the, the home that I'm looking at on the market is still you know, listed for $700,000. And two years ago, it was listed for $300,000. Inflation is not fixed. No. That's never going to happen. That $700,000 home is never coming back at 300K. But that $700,000 home will stay at 700 for a while. Maybe go to 690, maybe go to 710, 720, but it's not going to 800, not going to 900. That's fixing inflation. And that is what we have fixed. Every single metric of recent inflation trends, of instantaneous inflation trends, show that inflation is fully reverted back to 2%. Today, Tuesday, for example, what's the data we got today? You know, I write down the economic data we get every single day and try to parse it. So, home prices, we got, we got, we got the home price index, the S and P, CoreLogic, Schiller, Twenty City, uh, decline month over month, fifth straight month of uh, month over month declines for home prices in the Twenty City index. Uh, year over year, the rate came down to six point seven seven percent. That's the eighth consecutive month of slowing year over year growth. 
and we're slowing by about 1% per month now. We're at 6.77. The long-term average since 20, since 2000, ever since this index was started, is about 5%. This is a November reading. So that means by um, January, February 23, home price appreciation is going to be fully back to that 5% normal. So home price growth completely gone. The employment cost index came up about 1%, 1.1% expected, 1.2% prior. The average in the 2000s was about 0.9%. The average in the uh, 2010s was about, I pulled up on my computer, I just did it right before this call actually, was about 0.6%. So we're at one right now and we're falling. We're getting back to normal employment cost inflation. Everything from all the manufacturing surveys, the ISM manufacturing, the ISM services surveys, the, the consumer inflation sur or expectation surveys, uh, the Fed surveys, Dallas Fed, New York Fed, Philly Fed, you parse all that survey data and inflation prices paid indices, prices expected indices, inflation expectations, all those things are collapsing right now. So I do not think there is any data point out there that is telling us that inflation is, is still a problem because it's not. It really just is not a problem anymore. And actually, I read a really interesting research paper proposing a new calculation for CPI because CPI is the month is the year over year change, right? It takes a 12 month average change in prices. But the problem with that in stable times, that's fine because if you take the average of 12 months and the 12 months doesn't have much volatility in there, then you know, you're going to get a pretty accurate reading. But if you're taking inflation readings on a 12 month average, in an era when inflation is either rapidly rising or rapidly falling or being very volatile, then you get a lot of volatile readings in that 12-month average, and you're not going to get a true read of the instantaneous inflation in the market. You're going to get a read of the average inflation over the past 12 months, which doesn't tell you much if inflation has changed a lot over the past 12 months which in this case it has. So I read a research paper that proposed a different calculation to inflation called instantaneous inflation, which is opposed to having an average weighting for each of the last 12 months. It applies um, uh, higher weighting to more recent data. It has a recency bias. So you know, if, it, if the inflation data was last month and two months ago and three months ago, that's a much more important in the calculation than you know the 9, 10, 11 months ago data. And when you incorporate that calculation, that analysis to the inflation situation we have today, instantaneous inflation has actually fully resolved to 2% in December versus 6.5% on the, on the re, uh, real regular CPI. So um, I think everything you're looking at says inflation is dead and gone. Whether or not the Fed accepts that on Wednesday, I don't know. But the Fed is going to be forced to accept that at some point because the all the data points to lower inflation readings over the next few months. We're going to get those, you know, six and a half is going to come to six, five and a half, four, three, two. And the labor market starting to collapse a little bit. You're seeing a lot of tech layoffs. You're seeing even layoffs outside of tech. So I think the Fed is, is basically coming to a point where they're going to be forced to except that they've won the fight and they should celebrate it actually won the fight against inflation and they're going to pause that to me is a almost inevitable outcome here within three months the fed pauses so regardless of how stocks react on wednesday to powell he's dovish they soar he's hawkish they crash i don't know but what i do know is that after that crash or after that rally Two weeks expo facto, stocks are going to rebound. Stocks are going to soar because it's going to become very clear in the data that regardless of what the Fed says, what they're going to do is they're going to pause a rate hike campaign. We've talked about it before on these calls. Fed pauses systematically spark stock market rallies. Every single time the Fed pauses a rate hike campaign, stocks rally. This time will not be different. 
And then one final thing I want to say, I know I kind of want a big ramble there about inflation, and all that stuff, but something that's really important, why I think the rally can be really large in 2023 is valuations. And there is this argument out there that, oh my God, you know, stocks are still expensive. Look at the S&P 500. It bottomed at like 17 times earnings. That's not a trial valuation for or a trough valuation for stocks. Normally the S&P 500 drops to, you know, 13, 14 times forward earnings or in the case of 09, 11 times forward earnings. So normally stocks get a lot lower than 17 times at the bottom of a bear market. The valuation bottom is not 17 times. And that is a big hat that bears hang there or a big, um, uh, big thing that bears hang their hat on because they're like, oh, this stock market's still not cheap. And I, I get that. I do because that is concerning. If the bottom was 17 times, that, that's, that's not a bottoming valuation. But that 17 times is being carried higher by the mega cap tech, by Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, NVIDIA. Those companies, those stocks are still very richly valued. If you remove them from the index, so you remove the six largest stocks from the S&P 500, and you just look at the P multiple of the S&P 494. So take out the big six, and you just have the, everybody else, S&P 500 minus the big six. The, average, or the, the forward P multiple there is 13. Mm-hmm. That's a bottoming multiple. That's a bottoming valuation. Go look at the S&P 400 mid cap. They're... I think they're at uh, they're ba- almost at the valuation low of 09. S and P 600 small cap did fall to the valuation low of 09. So really, the Russell 2000 did fall to valuation lows. So really, when you look across the indices, stocks did crash to valuation multiples consistent with stock market bottoms. Everything except for the S and P 500, which means that everything except for the big six tech stocks. You take those out of the market. Everything else did crash like this was a real bad crash. Mm -hmm. To me, that tells me, okay, when we do turn around, there is valuation firepower here, valuation ammunition to send this rally into rocket speed. So that's something I think it's very important to note when we talk about valuations and why there's a lot of room to run. If indeed the Fed does take that noise dial from a six to a three, then I think we can get some pretty big rallies in, in, in stocks. I mean, the market action in January has shown us that. Right. The, the Nasdaq is up already, you know, more than 10 percent in uh, in January. We, we have stocks that are up 70, 80 percent in January. Um, I think the analysis I ran the other night, 110 stocks have already doubled in 2023. There's clearly a lot of ammunition for a rally if the Fed takes that down from six to three. So that's what it all hinges on. All right. Uh, well, since, like you said, we sort of have our hands tied when it comes to talking about the Fed today until they make their announcement tomorrow, let's zoom back to certain investment themes and sectors for 2023 overall. First, sounds good. AI. Everyone's raging about AI right now, but it seems like the sector right. in itself doesn't lend itself to transparent or easy investment opportunities. So, Luke, can you walk us through all of the AI hype and maybe point out some stocks to buy to play the AI boom? Yeah, I mean, AI is everything right now, right? And I, it's kind of funny how everybody just all of a sudden is like obsessed with it. It's like AI has been in development for a long time. It's been making an impact for a long time. There are a lot of companies out there that have been using AI uh, to drive cost efficiencies for a long time. 
Um, and then all of a sudden you launch one consumer product, ChatGPT, and everyone's obsessed. It's like, okay, it's silly, but that's also how the world works. You know, people weren't really privy to the internet and everything that it could do and all the powers that it, it held and harnessed until the iPhone came around. And there was one consumer product. Everyone was like, oh my gosh, I can do all this here. And then boom, that really sparked the 2010s internet boom, digital era boom. So that's just how the world works. You know, you can have all these kind of dormant, latent technologies that are just waiting for that one consumer product to wake them up and burst them onto the onto the main scene. And that's where we are right now with AI. ChatGPT was the iPhone moment for for the AI revolution. And I truly believe it is it is taking technologies that were already there, but were being ignored, were dormant, were latent, and is now waking them up, recharging them, and 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 everyone's getting excited about it. Uh prim- Probably the biggest example of this is C3.ai. They're an enterprise AI software company. They provide AI, enterprise AI software solutions for a lot of legacy firms, a lot of oil and gas firms. So they build, um, they, they kind of like allow these companies to build AI solutions like Legos. So they kind of pre-code a bunch of AI applications and then these companies can come in and then choose i want this and i want that and i can kind of plug it build it together and make my own lego or ai system from these little ai building blocks so they provide that solution it's a fabulous company it's been growing very quickly it's a it's a very profitable business model with very high gross margins a very strong management team they have a lot of deals um growth has been very robust yet the stock got crushed in 2022 because of this anti-growth regime fell all the way down to about ten dollars and now here we are and it's gone from 10 to i think about 22 23 dollars where are we right now on it actually pull it up today it's getting a massive pop because it announced it you know a chat gpt integration like they announced a chat gpt integration in the stock yeah it's at 20 dollars and 50 cents you know and the stock's soaring today up 23 25 percent so that's that's what's going on right now is you have a lot of stocks i believe that are like c3.ai that have these fantastic technologies that were beaten down in 2022 for macroeconomic reasons unrelated to the core fundamentals of the business or the technology or the potential impact its business technology can have over the next you know five to ten years and now these stocks are starting to charge back up because everyone's like wait they have something really cool that could add a lot of value we should buy that dip the stock's super cheap I think that's what's going on. I think you're going to see that in C3.ai. You're going to see that in UiPath. I think you're going to see it in a lot of robotic stocks. Symbotic has been acting very strongly recently. That's an AI-powered robotics firm. So I think you're going to see a lot of these AI stocks that were crushed in 2022 be the leaders of a 2023 growth resurgence, a 2022 stock market rebound. And that's where I think a lot of the investment opportunities in AI are going to come from. You're going to want to find companies that are using AI to drive real-world economic value, probably through cost efficiencies. Um, and that's going to be achieved through either soft, really innovative software, AI-powered software, or really innovative AI-powered hardware, robotics. UiPath, C3AI, those are software firms using AI to drive cost efficiencies and optimizations for enterprises. Uh, and then Symbotic is an example on the hardware side, leveraging AI-powered hardware, robotics, to drive cost efficiencies for warehouses and logistics companies and retailers. So I think that's where you're going to see the investment opportunities in, in 2023 for AI. And then also coming back full circle to Chad GPT, um, you know, that's where Microsoft looks really interesting. If Microsoft stock has been hammered. It's stuck in a nasty downtrend. It's trading at a five-year low valuation uh, because cloud growth is slowing. But 
if you go through the recent conference call, Satya Nadella, all he could talk about was AI, 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 and a little more AI. AI is the next platform wave, in his opinion. AI is probably going to be as big for the company as cloud was in the 2010. So imagine that what open AI is today, what Microsoft's AI capabilities are today, is where Microsoft Azure was 10 years ago. And you get to buy now Microsoft stock at a massive discount before this AI boom starts. So I think Microsoft stock actually looks pretty interesting here. Stock is declining because of the legacy business. Upside from the future business is not priced in. I like that. It feels like where Microsoft stock was back in 2015 when everyone was worried about the declining PC business, yet it had this booming cloud business that was about to take over the world. Buy the stock then, and then boom, 2015 to 2022, that stock, 2021, that stock was a mega, mega, mega winner. So I think here we are. Everybody's worried about the declining cloud business, and they're not even thinking about it pricing in the coming boom in the AI business. I think it's a similar situation. I think from 2023 to 2028, 2029, 2030, the stock can soar behind growth in the AI business as the cloud business becomes almost an afterthought for Microsoft. So I do like Microsoft stock as an AI play as well. Okay. Um, I want to dive a little deeper into actual applications of AI outside of the automation process that you just described. Uh, one being self-driving cars. You've talked about it before. And right. in that respect, AI makes a lot of sense to me. So my question is, are you seeing self-driving car developments as a result of the AI breakthroughs we're seeing in 2023? Or is it piggybacking off of what's already been in development? Right. Yeah. So that's a great question. And that is AI applied to hardware to achieve cost efficiencies. That is Mm self-driving, right? Why do we want self-driving cars? Well, it's really a big push from logistics firms and ride-hailing firms to remove costs from the system. Ride-hailing firms notoriously have a tough time turning a profit because you have to pay the drivers. Remove the the drivers, remove the labor expenses, and boom, Uber and Lyft are all of a sudden supremely profitable operations. So there's a big push there. That's a cost efficiency push. And there's a big push in logistics companies, UPS, FedEx, Amazon, Walmart. They also have a huge need to remove labor expenses from the trucking part of their operations. And if they do, they can become infinitely more profitable. So they Again, that's, that's, that's a push driven by uh, a need for cost efficiency. So when I talked about two ways to invest in AI, AI software to achieve cost efficiencies or AI hardware to achieve cost efficiencies, self-driving cars fall under the umbrella of AI hardware to achieve cost efficiencies. Uh, yes, I am seeing AI accelerate the self-driving movement right now because self-driving, the problem with self-driving is hardware and software. It's twofold. On the hardware side, you need to build sensors that are cheap enough and capable enough to ingest tons and tons and tons and tons of data uh, and feed that back into a software where you get to the software part of the problem. The software part of the problem is you need to have AI algorithms that are smart enough and capable enough to take all this data captured by these sensors, digest it, understand it, and produce decisions from that data on an instantaneous basis. So if AI is getting better, then the software side of the problem presumably is getting a lot 
better too. Tesla on their recent conference call, just like Microsoft talked about AI all the time, Tesla talked about AI all the time. Elon Musk believes Tesla is one of the be- the biggest and strongest AI companies in the world because they have all these cars out there on the road with all these sensors, ca- mostly camera sensors, capturing visual data and then sending that data back to Tesla's AI software, which is learning from that to build more robust self-driving um, uh, capabilities. So that's what Tesla is doing. Mercedes-Benz, they're going to launch an L3 autonomous vehicle in the second half of this year. The 2024, a bunch of 2024 Mercedes models are going to have L3 autonomous capability. Now that's big because L2, you know, L uh, autonomous driving goes from L0 to L5. Currently, Tesla full self-driving and a lot of the self-driving stuff out there is L2, which is you can put it in self-driving mode, but you got to be attentive. And you can't take your eyes off the road and you can't do other things. You can't be distracted. You have to be attentive. L3 is you can afford to do something else while the car is in self-driving mode. So you put in self-driving mode and you can read a book or you can get on your phone or you can get on your laptop and work or you can watch a movie. You still need to be able to get to the car and take manual control of the car at a moment's notice. So you'll be watching a movie and the car will be like, oh, we need you. Okay, I'm on it. But you can take your eyes off the road safely and do other things safely, whereas the current kind of cutting edge technology in the market that's available in consumer cars, you cannot do that. So uh, that's a big development, big step forward for Mercedes-Benz. Now, what's interesting about Mercedes-Benz on that front is they use LiDAR. Tesla infamously does not use LiDAR, um, and that's a huge mistake and a huge uh, drawback and shortcoming of the Tesla self-driving push. But in any event, um, Mercedes does use LiDAR. They're going to release this L3 autonomous capability in the second half of 2023. And in early 2022, Mercedes partnered and took a stake, an investment stake in Luminar mm. with the idea that they're going to use Luminar LiDAR in a lot of their vehicles going forward. I, It's not been released yet whether or not this new self-driving system, L3 self-driving system, and the cars in 2024 will have Luminar LiDAR. That's not clear at this point, but given that Mercedes is doing this on the cutting edge of this and just a year ago took a massive stake in Luminar and said they were going to buy a bunch of Luminar LiDAR and use that Luminar LiDAR on their cars, you know, you can connect the dots there and say, okay, you know, Luminar LiDAR is really powering um, up this revolution. So that gets us really, you know, we've been bullish on Luminar stock and we continue to be very bullish on Luminar stock as a very uh, enabling force of a self-driving revolution that is going to finally come to be. And that's kind of how we look at self-driving is that for years, people have promised self-driving and it's not come to be. And everyone's like, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? And it's finally become the story of the boy who cried wolf. But the wolf has finally showed up. And this is a good wolf, not the bad wolf. But the wolf, <laughs> the wolf is, has finally showed up for the self-driving revolution. And there are now self-driving cars in Phoenix. There are self-driving cars in uh, San Francisco. There are self-driving cars in parts of L.A. There are self-driving cars in Houston. There are self-driving trucks throughout Arizona and Texas. Uh, there are self-driving cars throughout China. And so I think you're finally starting to see these self-driving cars show up. The advances in AI are only going to, going to accelerate that. 2024, you're going to see the first automotive LiDAR come to market. Volvo is launching uh, the is it the EX90. EX, EC, I forget the – it's a seven-seater electric um, Volvo car that's going to have Luminar LiDAR. I'm very interested in the vehicle. That comes out in 2024. Um, you're going to have Mercedes-Benz with their um, – 
uh, L3 autonomous vehicles coming out very soon too. So I really think that we're starting to gain a lot of momentum in the self-driving revolution. And I am getting very bullish on those stocks for a big rebound in 23 and to continue that strength in 24 and beyond. Okay. Um, shifting away from AI towards another sector that you're bullish on for the 2020s, clean energy or the energy transition. Mm -hmm. Oil major BP just hiked its long-term demand forecast for clean energy in its Energy Outlook 2023 report and simultaneously reduced its long-term demand forecast for oil and natural gas. Now, that seems pretty bullish for the industry. Question I have for you, Luke, is it? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, it is. That's an oil major. That That is a company that makes its bread and butter off of producing and selling oil. And they just said, oil's screwed. That's basically <laughs> what they said. I mean, they, they, they came out with this new report, Energy Outlook 2023, and I believe they reduced Oil demand forecast by 2035, they reduced that by about 5 or 6%, and they reduced 2035 demand forecast for natural gas by about 5 or 6%. So fossil fuel demand, they expect to be 6% lower, 5 to 6% lower by 2035 than they did last year. So they came out with a set of forecasts in early 2022, and they came out with a set of forecasts in early 2023. The early 2023 forecasts are 5 to 6% lower than the early 2022 ones. On the flip side of the coin, that demand is just shifting to clean energies. They hiked their uh, renewables energy demand forecast by 2035 by 5 to 6%. So 2022 forecast, 23 forecast, the 23 forecasts for renewable energy demand are 5 to 6% higher. Fossil fuel demand, 5 to 6% lower. So they're basically just saying there's a shift going on. And if you go through the report and read the analysis and the rationale, they're saying exactly what we've been saying in this podcast for months now. The... Russia-Ukraine conflict highlighted the importance of energy independence and will accelerate the transition from relying on foreign fossil fuels to relying on locally sourced renewable energies because the sun shines everywhere and the wind blows everywhere. So you can produce that stuff in your own country as opposed to having to rely on Russia or you know, other places of the world that you cannot really rely on. So they believe that the world was, again, faced with this fork in the road in 2022 of, okay, we have this energy crisis. How do we solve it? Do we double down on oil and gas production or do we accelerate the uh, energy transition? We've been saying all the legislation is choosing to accelerate the energy transition. BP is saying that's exactly what's happening. So we're changing our long-term demand forecast. BP's big in hydrogen. That's their play. So they're not saying, you know, we're going extinct. They're saying, okay, our core business is losing steam. We'll continue to lose momentum. Um, so we're making big bets on hydrogen. So that's where they're going. Um, and that's really interesting too. So, but I, I think, you know, kind of net net, just zooming out at the big picture, uh, a lot of people felt like the big oil run and natural gas run in 2021 and 2022 was specifically in 2022 was the start of this like blowback against the energy transition and the start of this like, OK, we're going to actually stick with natural gas and oil for a long time, longer than, than we initially thought. No, no, please give me a break. No, no. All 2022 did. It was the last breath of a dying industry. And uh, uh, uh. Uh, and it's going to be a dramatic death and the industry is going to die and we're going to accelerate the transition towards solar, towards wind, towards hydrogen, towards energy storage, towards all these wonderful, clean, super cheap 
uh, energy sources. And I would be fully invested in that trend right now. Fully invested in solar, fully invested in wind, fully invested in hydrogen, fully invested in energy storage, fully invested in this rethinking and reshaping of the global energy landscape. And the reason I find what BP said super bullish is because, you know, for me to say it is one thing. I'm a guy that's been pro clean energy. You know, I was raised in an an environment in a generation that just fully heartedly adopted it and believed it. It's one thing for me to say clean energy is the future. It's another thing for one of the world's largest oil companies to say clean energy is the future. So the fact that they're saying it and the logic completely agrees with them (laughs) tells me, hey, you know, this is an unstoppable mega trend. Mm -hmm. You need to invest alongside it. Don't miss out by thinking that the oil industry's comeback in 2022 was the start of this 10-year resurgence of oil. Mm -hmm. No, it was a head fake. Pretty good head fake. Jab left. Now everyone's going left. Now everyone's going right. So, you know, this just just don't fall for the head fake. Um, Stick with the trend that's been in motion for 15 years now, at least 10, probably 15, maybe even 20 years now, and is only going to accelerate as a result of recent geopolitical developments. All right. Uh, sticking with clean energy, but moving aside a little bit into EVs. Hold up, hold up. Actually, one, one second, Aaron. Okay. So something I want to mention that's really important on that, because I, I totally forgot to mention it, but it's really, really, really important, is costs. So a lot of the stuff we need for solar panels, mm-hmm. specifically polysilicon, that's made in China. That okay. Go ahead. I have a. I do have a follow up now that you're bringing this up right now. But go ahead. Yeah, that stuff is made in China. Mm-hmm. A lot of it's made in China um, because of China's COVID lockdown policies. Supply chain to China have been very unreliable for two years now, and that has caused inconsistent output of polysi over the past two years, which has caused polysi prices to rise dramatically. And that has short-circuited what has been a 10-plus you know, year decline in the cost of solar panels, cost of solar panel installation increase in 2022. But what we saw in late 2022, what we've been seeing is that polysi prices and input metal prices for solar panels are plunging absolutely plunging because China's reopening, those factories are coming back online, those supply chains are becoming consistent and reliable again, and they're pumping out a lot of stuff for solar panels. Supply is increasing dramatically. That's causing costs to plunge. So I fully expect the massive cost declines of solar that we saw in the 2010s, they took a break in 2022. They're now going to resume with more force than ever in 2023, 2024, 2025. As that resumes, I think solar adoption is only going to increase, especially with all the legislation being passed in the US and EU to support solar adoption. So I'm really bullish on solar uh, from a cost perspective and adoption perspective over the next few years. Anyways, question, go. Yes. Uh, so I was wondering if you were familiar with the transparent solar panel technologies where they basically have created these solar panels that are transparent that would be go in place of windows and, again, absorb light and convert it to energy the same way normal solar panels do. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, there's, yeah, there's I, I've, I've read about the technology. I don't think it's fully developed yet and, and as good as it can be and well be. A company named View is, was trying to do that a little bit. Um, I, I think it's interesting and cool, and I think it will be the future, but I don't think the technology is there yet at a point to where we can be invested in it or there's really good investment opportunities. I think if that technology does get really good, the people who are going to end up commercializing are going to be you know, the, the end phases and the solar edges and the big boys in the industry. There's no way they're going to miss out on that trend. So 
Um, I think you just got to stick with the big boys for now. Mm-hmm. And then if some interesting smaller player comes up that is really a pioneer or a leader in that specific technology, I think that's really cool. But I think that's a really cool application. These transparent solar panels, basically windows are, are solar panels. And then solar panels on cars for solar electric vehicles. I think that's a technology that's really interesting to me. There are a couple of companies that are trying to create solar EVs. Again, really early stage, unproven. Let's wait for them to prove themselves. But that's where the industry is going. Mm-hmm. I think that you, you can basically – we're figuring out how to make solar panels. You think of these big, rigid things that go on roofs, but we're figuring out ways and getting innovative with ways to turn these big, rigid solar panels into these flexible things that can fit anywhere. They can be on the bodies of cars. They can be windows. They can be, you know, pretty much anywhere. And I think that is the future of solar. I think the future of solar is these small flexible, transparent solar panels that can fit on cars, fit on windows, can be windows, um, and can be everywhere. And so I think that is where we're eventually going. Solar roads is something that's pretty interesting. I know that's a technology they're working on in Europe. It's not come to America yet. But basically building solar roads where the road is solar panel and that solar charge constantly is being transferred into your electric vehicle. So you don't really ever need to charge it. It's charging as it drives. Pretty Mm -hmm. cool. Um, that's stuff that's being worked on. That's the future of solar. And that's a future that fossil fuels cannot compete with. So place your bets, folks. Place your bets. <laughs> All right. Uh, <clears throat> now moving on to EVs. Again, you've been bullish. You are bullish. Uh, how do the recent round of price cuts from Tesla and Ford influence your thinking about EV stocks going into the rest of 2023? Well, you know, I've talked about this before, and that is I believe price cuts are very beneficial for the industry. Um, Are they going to hurt margins in 2023? Sure, absolutely. Although, interestingly enough, Tesla said that their margins will be much better than expected in 2023, even with the price cuts. So that is something to know. And I think the important thing on margin impact in 2023 with respect to the price cuts is that the price cuts will be a headwind, but falling inflation and improving supply chains, especially out of China, because a lot of EV stuff comes out of China too, those costs are going to come down. That's going to be a massive tailwind for margins of EV makers in 2023. So on the margin structure side, you're going to get a headwind from sales prices are coming down, but you're going to get a tailwind from input costs are going down as well. Mm. So I think you're going to look at companies that have lower average sale prices, but also lower unit input costs. So unit margins may be able to be pretty similar depending on how those two, how that tug of war plays out. You're going to get more negative impact on lower average sales prices or more positive impact on lower input prices. And I think you're going to get more positive impact on lower input prices. So I fully expect lower unit input costs to more than offset lower unit sales prices and have a net impact that is positive to unit profit margins for EV makers. So I don't think profit margins are going to be as impacted as everyone thinks in 2023 in the EV industry by these price cuts. But what they will do absolutely on the other side of the coin is they are going to stimulate demand like nobody's business. My um, you know, Tesla said that January orders are as hot as they've ever been ever since they announced the price cuts. And I know a couple friends that actually bought Teslas this month, brand new Model 3s, Model Ys bought them this month because of the price cuts. 
So it's like, well, you know, I not only is Tez Elon saying it, but I'm seeing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you go to Google search trends and you look up electric vehicles, you'll see that search interest is starting to spike this year. So um, I think that these price cuts are working in what they're supposed to do, and that's stimulating demand. And so I think that you're going to get demand stimulation without much of a, a margin impact, and that's going to allow these companies to grow revenues and profits in 2023 at better than expected clips. And I, I don't think you can be, um, I don't think you can ignore or neglect that Tesla is a very competent company. You know, a lot of us can can not like Tesla for various reasons and not like Elon for various reasons, but uh, we can't just say, you know, Tesla is a very competent company. Fact, QED, done. Um, they didn't randomly choose to do price hikes right now. They're not having a demand issue. So the price hikes are not, or the price cuts are not in response to, to a demand issue. So why are they doing price cuts now? Well, because they can afford to do price cuts now. Elon sees and Tesla sees that inflation is coming off. Their input costs are coming down. Uh, China's coming, getting back up and running. They're going to get a lot of parts, a lot of supply. Their factories are achieving economies of scale. Uh, so they understand their input costs are going to plunge in 2023. That's why they're cutting prices, because they can afford to cut prices and still grow very profitably. It's not a coincidence. And... Um, I think that's that's how you got to read into it, and I think you got to be bullish on EV stocks here, even if other people are saying margins are going to hit because of the price war. No, they're not. They're just going to stimulate demand, and everything's going to be fine. Love EV stocks here. Rivian, Lucid. Uh, we like Tesla at 100. It popped up to 170. Um, that stock is still pretty cheap here. I think there's runways. So I do like um, EV stocks for the next 12 months, absolutely. All right. Uh, last big sector I want to talk about housing. You've been bullish on a housing recovery in 2023. Housing stocks mm-hmm. are indeed soaring. Any update there? Uh, every data point we're getting in the housing market is bullish right now. Every data point. Home builder sentiment is rebounding for the first time in this down cycle. Existing home sales up, pending home sales up, new home sales up, uh, mortgage demand up, mortgage applications up, mortgage rates lower. Um, uh, home prices lower, so that's improving affordability and people are getting back into the market. Uh, our general read, you know, talking to people in the industry is that traffic flows are very, very good right now, uh, for open houses. Um, you go on to Zillow, you're seeing a lot more saves, uh, on their, um, listings than you did a month or two ago. These are things we, we follow. So you're seeing every single data point in the housing market is pointing up. Um, pointing towards an inflection. And so I remain very bullish on housing stocks. I think they're very cheap. Again, it's going to come down to the Fed. The Fed has a hand on the dial. They're at a six. I think if they stay at a six or bring it down to a three, housing stocks are going to soar. They take that six and go to a 10, that rebound thesis gets thrown out the window absolutely and entirely. It's a very rate-sensitive industry. So there is the massive risk with the Fed. But I think the odds of the Fed going from a six to a 10, turning up the heat, that's very, very small and small enough that you're probably going to want to be bullish on, on housing stocks here. The risk reward makes a lot of sense. So still very bullish on that. Still one of my favorite investment themes for 2023. Okay. Um, there are actually a few smaller topics I wanted to ask you about because you've recently written about them and I found them interesting as they're a little divergent from your bigger outlooks. One of them is emerging markets. You're growing bullish on emerging market mm-hmm. stocks in 2023. So why? Oh, yeah, that, that's a strong dollar, weak dollar play. Uh, strong dollar hurts emerging markets, weak dollar benefits emerging markets. You can see a one-to-one correlation over the past 
uh, several years. Um, the dollar is weakening in 2023. I believe it's going to keep weakening in 2023. Uh, the Fed is pretty much done with the rate hiking campaign, in my opinion. The economy is going to restabilize. Inflation is coming down. These are all factors which should allow the U.S. dollar to weaken this year. As the U.S. dollar weakens, emerging market stocks should benefit in a big way. They got slammed in 2022 on dollar strength. They should rebound back to life in 2023 on dollar weakness. So that's the bull thesis on EM stocks. Um, it's, it's played out very well over the past two two to three months, uh, ever since late October, when the market really bottomed, uh, EM stocks bottomed and soared very, very strongly. So I think that trend continues over the next several months as well. Okay. Uh, another smaller topic is platinum. Uh, totally caught me off guard when I read your research notes on why platinum stocks could be big winners in the 2020s. So mm-hmm. care to run us through that bull thesis. Right. So yeah, platinum has... Uh, there's a lot of uses for platinum, but the one of the biggest uses of platinum is in the automobile sector, where platinum is used in um, internal combustion engines. But platinum is not used in electric vehicle batteries yet, or it may never be used in electric vehicle batteries. So uh, platinum prices have kind of been in the secular decline throughout the 2010s or since the 2010s because ICE vehicles have you know, dropped and EVs have risen as we've had that ICE EV shift, uh, platinum demand has dropped and platinum prices have dropped. And so that's been a huge headwind for platinum prices. But platinum could catch a bid in 2020 and it is catching a bid uh, in late, or late 2022 and early 2023. And it could continue to catch a bid because platinum is actually used in hydrogen fuel cells. So hydrogen fuel cells use platinum they, uh, as a catalyst to produce um, hydrogen. And so I think that if hydrogen trucking and hydrogen, other, tran- other uh, means of hydrogen transportation gain traction in the 2020s, which I expect them to, I do think hydrogen trucking is going to be a big thing in the 2020s, that all of this worry about EV demand destruction, or rather platinum demand destruction as a result of the rise of EVs is going to get replaced by hopes for renewed platinum demand strength behind hydrogen trucking growth or hydrogen transportation growth. And so I think that there is a real big reason to get bullish on platinum prices in the 2020s behind the hydrogen revolution. I kind of see it as an alternative picks and shovels way to play uh, the hydrogen revolution. For those that, that don't know with the picks and shovels term, uh, 1849, California gold rush. Everybody came out to California to hopefully strike it rich, finding gold. Uh, very few people did strike it rich, finding gold. But, you know, who did strike it rich were the people that sold all those people picks and shovels. Uh, <laughs> and even Levi Strauss sold them jeans and created Levi's. So um, that's the whole concept behind picks and shovels is sometimes you have a booming industry. You don't want to invest in the people that are trying to find gold in that industry, but rather the people that are selling the picks and shovels to the people trying to find gold in that industry. And so I think that platinum is a very compelling alternative picks and shovels play on the hydrogen revolution. So that, that, yeah, I just kind of came across that started digging the price action started to make sense to me. So I, yeah, I think platinum is, is pretty interesting. That that's why I wrote about it in that research note. Okay. Uh, well that covers all of our topics, uh, but we do have some fan questions, uh, starting with Ian S asks, uh, what's the score with brilliant earth took a punt back in October down 35% currently. Uh, love Brilliant Earth, I think. So there's the long-term thesis and the short-term thesis. The long-term thesis is that 
Brilliant Earth has created the the diamond brand for the next generation of people that are getting married. Um, they've created a basically a mostly digitally native brand that had, focuses mostly on lab diamonds and ethically sourced diamonds. The marketing is on par for Gen Z and millennials. The products are on par for Gen Z and millennials. So I think this is the next big diamond brand. I think they're disrupting the diamond industry with novel products, ethically sourced diamonds and lab source and lab created diamonds, uh, and very good marketing to appeal to younger audiences. Not to mention that their um, sales strategy is very online focused, digitally native. That's what younger people like as well. And their physical footprint, if you go to one of their showrooms, is a very simple, modern, elegant look that resonates with younger audiences. So I think this company has built the diamond brand uh, to disrupt the diamond industry. And I think they're the next 400 pound grill in the diamond industry. So long term, I love the company as the diamond disruptor. Short term, I love the company for a consumer spending rebound in 2023. The reason the stock got hit in late 2022 is because of all these concerns about a recession and people don't buy diamonds in recessions. Um, or sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But most of the time, they don't buy diamonds in recessions. And so that's why Brilliant stock has been has been struggling and they did show a slowdown in their holiday sales. But I think that that slowdown is going to reverse course here in 2023 as the Fed goes again, takes a Dow from a six to a three. If they do that, consumer spending should get reinvigorated. Financing rates should come down. Some people finance diamonds. A lot of people finance diamonds. And so that should allow uh, more purchasing power to come back into the space. And I think diamond sales could have a really strong 2023 and Brilliant Earth could have a really strong 2023. The stock is incredibly cheap here. Let's see. Where I mean, the multiples on it were very, 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 very low. Let's see. Da, 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 da. Sorry, guys. Pulling this up. Pulling this up. Pulling this up. Um, I mean, yeah, we're at 15 times forward earnings for a company at 0.9 times forward sales, 10 times forward cash flow. For a company that is growing at you know 15% plus per year on revenues with 50% gross margins, taking EBITDA margins from about 9% to probably 15, 16, 17% over time. So this is a 15% revenue grower, 50% plus revenue grower, 20, 25% EPS grower trading at 15 times forward earnings. That's dirt cheap. I absolutely love Brilliant Earth stock, short term and long term here. I think it's a real big time winner. All right. Uh, next question from Red Eye Jedi. Do you think Open Door could somehow use Chat GPT to their advantage in growing or any other type of advancement for the company? I like the name Red Eye Jedi. I like that name. Big Star Wars fan over here, in case anybody is out there still <laughs> listening. I love Star Wars. Um, big Star Wars nerd. Anyways, moving on. Uh, Open Door and Chat GPT. No. Open Door has their own AI. And Open Doors AI is getting smarter the more it works through this horrendous housing market that is now starting to turn around. That's Open Door stocks starting to turn around. No, Open Door is not going to use ChatGPT. I actually think Open Door, the AI algorithms they have are better than what ChatGPT is. Um, ChatGPT gets all the hype and everybody's talking about it. It's a consumer product, but the actual inner workings of it, you know, you talk to people in the industry, AI engineers, data scientists, they're like, yeah, it's cool. But like, you know, other stuff people are working on is way, way better. So, no, I don't think Opendoor is going to use ChatGPT. The data that ChatGPT has access to, remember, machine learning algorithms, it's all about they just ingest data and learn from that data. They, that 
the AI algos underneath ChatGPT are general knowledge algos, general knowledge data. That's not going to help out Open Door. Open Door is trying to real time price housing assets in a dynamic market. They need access to data, yesterday's data, today's data, last minute's data. Like they need access to all that stuff. Boom, 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 boom. That's not data ChatGPT is working on. ChatGPT is working on old data, old school data, and it's just chilling where it is. Open Door has a different AI algorithm, but they, the AI algos are still very, very powerful. And I think that's one of the reasons why I really like Open Door is that they are using AI to change this industry. And yes, they got punched in the face in 2022 <laughs> by a housing market that, I mean, that was the craziest housing market of all time. The, the, the pre-COVID or the COVID boom and the post-COVID hangover. I mean, this company has been on the roller coaster, <laughs> roller coaster rides. They, they, they had trouble finding stability. But the core premise of this, when this company was founded in the 2010s, was use AI to create a more efficient housing market. Love that goal. Love that vision. And they're going to do that. They just got sucker punched in early 2020s by a crazy housing market that is now starting to normalize and the stock's rebounding. It's up 100%. I mean, you got to give it give it some time. That's, that's, that's my view on Open Door. Again, I know the stock's been a massive loser. I know it's gone from <laughs> 10 to, to – what was its peak? 34? 10 to 34 to a buck. I mean, that – that's representative of the roller coaster ride the housing market has been on over the past three years. So once this housing market stabilizes, gets back to normal, grows like it did throughout the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, and 2010s, then open door stock can start rising in a steady, consistent fashion. Um, I'm very confident on open doors, AI algorithms, and what they're doing there to revolutionize the housing market. So, yeah, that, that's my open door spiel again for the 700th time on this podcast. But I'm going to like I said, I, I don't invest in stocks. I invest in companies and I really believe what open door is doing. I, I really believe in it. So I'm going to keep believing in it. All right. Well, great analysis for our listeners and HGI investors, as always. Luke, any last words before we wrap? Um, be prepared for, uh, well, people have already listened to this on Wednesday, so they're going to already have seen the fireworks, but don't be scared by the fireworks provided by the Fed. Uh, and, or, or don't be too greedy about it either. Mm. Um, what the Fed says tomorrow, we're, we're talking about the words of a single man. That should not carry much weight in how you're deciding to invest your stocks, invest in stocks. You should take the words understand what he's saying, see how the market reacts, and then look at the data. Look at the incoming inflation data. Look at the incoming economic data. See what that data is saying. See what that will tell us, give us clues to what the Fed is actually going to do, not what they say they're going to do. And right now, all that data to me is pointing towards a pause in the next three months. So regardless of what the Fed does on Wednesday, what Powell says, what the stock market reaction is, if it's a crash, I'll be buying the dip. If it's a rally, I'll be waiting for the next dip and I'll buy that dip. I'm in buy the dip mode. I think stocks soar in 2023 behind falling inflation, a Fed pause, and restabilizing economic activity. And what Powell says tomorrow is not going to change my thesis. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. Please, if you have any questions or comments for Luke, leave them in the comments section. We'd love to hear any feedback on any topics you'd like us to cover and always to see if we can answer any of your burning questions. As always, please don't forget to like and subscribe, and we will see you all next week. Until then, bye, all.